Kind of sad this guy's not going to join us because there's a lot to say about the peasantry, so. Alright, yeah, I guess we'll get started. So I'll just read what he wrote here. Uh, this is Chris. He's not able to join us, unfortunately. And he says that he would like to add that the whole book, he has been skeptical on how Trotsky analyzes peasants. And in chapter 8, he says that the peasants are more slow and less excited than the cities. And his Trotsky's only explanation is because they are more focused on war and land. And Chris would like Trotsky to dive more deeply into what the peasantry wants and how the revolution would or would not interest them. So I'll read the, the whole quote, too, from um, chapter 8 that Chris is referencing here. Uh, Trotsky writes, The villages accepted the revolution more slowly and less enthusiastically than the cities, but felt it no less deeply. For them, it was bound up with the question of war and land. So, do, do you have any specific thoughts, uh, Panda, kind of on the way Trotsky's described or portrayed the peasantry or, or the, the villages in contrast to the cities, if you have any specific thoughts on the, the question so far? Uh, not really, not really. Uh, to me, it seems like just a, a passive remark. I didn't think he really he had much of any thought it. it. Uh, I, I never... I have to admit, I have to admit, I haven't read much of just Keith's work, but considering the two put like 500 different books where you count the pamphlets and all of that, I'm sure at some point he delved deeper into or his thoughts about the, the peasants and whatever, and, and he simply he said, yeah, the peasants they seem really motivated. I will admit, I am also not well informed of enough about 20th century peasants as in the Russian Empire to know if Jotsky is being fair or not. To me, it just seems like a passive remark. It did really calm my attention there, but I do know that Jotsky in general has a, a reputation, at least among Marxist Leninists, is like myself, that he he doesn't really care about the peasants, and that was something that kind of fucked him over politically and yeah, whatnot, but I, I didn't really, really see the uh, remark as being or anything not worthy, at least when I read the chapter. Yeah, I got you. I think, um, and I linked an article to Chris too, but... I, I think a lot of pre-1917 Russian social theory was not, like, like among Marxists and stuff, was not really based around the the idea of, of like, considering the peasant uh, wants or, or demands so much. Mostly what the Russian Marxists were interested in, and this will tie in with our discussion for what we read this week, the Russian Marxists were mostly interested in achieving... Uh, uh, or what they thought would happen is is like a bourgeois revolution, that the next step for Russia was to uh, become more like England, to go from their kind of czarist feudalism toward a more English-looking capitalism. They thought that that would be kind of the next natural step, that what they needed was a democratic revolution or, or a capitalist revolution, basically. So their emphasis was not really so much on the peasants. And I think Lenin and Trotsky are kind of like one of the 
two only-ish people pre-1917 who were even really thinking about the peasantry for the most part. I think Lenin has his uh, famous work that he wrote where he uh, kind of makes a survey of the of the peasantry and tries to place them, uh, you know, or like categorize them economically based on their land holdings and things like that, where he expects their class interests to lie in a in a kind of coming revolution or anything like that. So he, he definitely paid some attention to the peasantry, but I think for the most part, the Russian Marxists weren't very interested in the peasantry. Uh, but you're not wrong, that it's definitely a charge that gets uh, laid at Trotsky's feet a lot, is that he kind of underestimates the peasantry. Uh, but we can, you know, we'll see if that's something we find through this book at least, uh, whether or not that's present or not. But uh, yeah, like I said, that does lead us into the uh, the two chapters we read this week. We read uh, chapters 9 and 10, and these are basically chapters that are dealing with the fallout of the February Revolution. And the fallout is that the Soviet gave the power over to, to the bourgeois democracy instead. They, they forced the Duma to create a provisional committee and elevated it to the height of provisional government, and then that became... Uh, the second pole in a dual power, the the Soviet is the one that created uh, the provisional government, basically. And Trotsky spends these two chapters asking the question or explaining why on earth this happened. Why did the workers not just take the power and then start using it? Because they're the ones who, the workers and the peasants in, in this case, um... But why did they not just go ahead and start running things as they were? Why did the power fall into the hands of the bourgeois again? Well, not again, but for the first time. Uh, it's it's kind of frustrating. It's like we, they, they went to all this work, and they, they don't even get to keep the power. They, they, they've handed it right back over. Uh, did you have any thoughts or comments on all that sort of development? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, first of all... I I have to admit I I didn't previously know how how much pretty much of the uh, Soviet uh sorry the executive committee I'm not really sure I I don't really remember uh, I what a specific name of the thing is but I didn't know that the dual pa I had no idea that the dual power was not all because all the uh, Liberals uh, got power first, but as as uh, communists, it's also kind of got power, whatever. No, oh, this chapter revealed to me that pretty much the communists had to force the liberals to. No, you do your part, and we we don't want to take over, and you take over, or we will take over, but we don't want to take over. And I have to admit that I suddenly lose my mind because you know it's it's it one of those things where. Uh, I'm assuming most people listening to this will be American, and, and I I hear that some Americans don't even learn about the Russian Revolution in high school or whatever, but at least here in Argentina, uh, we cover uh, uh, the Russian Revolution and along with other stuff of the world history, and it, it's always thought to us kind of like, okay, there were two revolutions, the one in February was the one where the liberals took power, and then in, in October, the communists took power. But pretty much, the one in February is the communists took power, but they 
I'd like that. They did the one power at the moment, so they forced it, and you have to take it. And that's just wild to me. It kind of that completely changed. Sorry, sorry. Yeah, I got to twist. I got to turn twist for a moment. It kind of changed it. It kind of changes the picture of how the Russian Revolution went. Like to to me, it changes the thing from okay. One group took power, and another one took power tomorrow. Or like, one t- group took power, but kind of procrastinated for around like nine months until they decided, okay, yeah, we, we have the power. It kind of changes the whole look to be more like at the second thing. Even if I'm, I'm sure we're going to uh, keep reading that it's going to be like, okay, no, the Libras actually saw the fight the power for a time, but they, I eventually lost it, it again or whatever, but no, that's just why to me. It's just why. It's just absolutely why that at the communists had the power first, but uh, of course it makes sense that the more moderate factions us of the socialists they had the power first, and they were the ones that I kind of gave it to the liberals. So, uh, it goes a long way to explain, okay, how the Bolsheviks, the extreme far left, who pretty much know how we can head off all the other of that end of the, the power. And the kind of reverse, oh, they were the only ones off with the and we are the ones to eventually take it. Well, yeah, it, it just shocked me. Also, uh, as a, a little aside, these two chapters, 50% of them is just just giving a messy bitch, talking the other, and talking shit about utterly irrational. Like, it's surely it does something really informative, but it's great to read. Surely, I, I, I surely think that, that if someone wants to prepare as to someone, I should have uh, about the Russian Revolution, should give it these two chapters and, and like to tell that the rest of the book is like that. I'll see how much they end up reading. You think what? If the rest... Sorry, you said if the la- if the, the rest of the reading is like these last two chapters, then what? No, no, I said... These two chapters are so... Are, are not really that... At informative... Okay, I'm lying, because... There's like two halves to these two chapters. One half is... As you know, the important thing about how the communists it kind of took power, sorry, not the communists really, how the socialists kind of took power, but kind of forced the Libras to take it. And all that, the explanations of how the dynamics of power were in the Federal Revolution, and all that. And the other half of the two chapters is just, just keep talking shit with a messy person or saying all kinds of things. It's about the liberals, about the more modern socialists, and something that is not really informative, was really juicy. It's something really fun to read, and I surely think that and something that coincidentally to more people or really in this stuff is just show them this, just, just make them read these two chapter things, and they're probably going to get their interest. Oh, all right. But yeah, the... 
the like you said, it, it's very shocking. I think, like you said, to a lot of people that the the socialists were were trying to just hand power back to the liberals, and so Trotsky dedicates these two chapters to answering like, well, why why the heck did that happen? And I know you joined us originally for for the German Revolution reading. If you if you remember the opening of the German Revolution, kind of was like basically the same thing where the the government was like dismantled and um, Ebert uh, was Ebert however you say it was was trying to give the power back or or they're trying to give it back away. They're they're trying to set up some kind of thing to give the power back to the bourgeoisie again. Um, so it's it's kind of a theme for these kind of socialists when the power falls into their hands to just be like, oh, no, I don't want that, you know? Uh, in Russia, you can kind of trace the... why they didn't think that they deserved the power is what I was talking about earlier, where the Russian Marxists thought that the next step for Russia was a bourgeois revolution, and they thought that a bourgeois democracy would be the next thing. So when the communists and the workers came into the power, all of the leading socialists had grown up in this tradition of what's next for Russia is a capitalist revolution. So then they get the power and they're like, oh, well, this goes to the capitalists. This this is not ours. We don't need this. And pretty much no one other than Trotsky and the Lenin a little bit were, were talking about how Russia was going to go straight to a working class rulership. Lenin was talking about a dictatorship, a, sorry, a democratic dictatorship of the proletariat and the peasantry, where Trotsky was just insisting on a dictatorship of the proletariat in Russia. And not that either were trying to say that this is what we should do, they were both trying to say that this is what will happen. Neither was trying to be prescriptive, they were trying to be descriptive. Um, but other than those two, most people thought that the next step in Russia was just going to be a bourgeois revolution. So that, coupled with the fact that the socialists that were present in Petersburg or Petrograd at the time are kind of second- and third-rate socialists, all of kind of the main people like Lenin, they're, they're all abroad, they're all in Switzerland. All of your top-rank thinkers and theorists and organizers and leaders are not in the country right now. So the people who yeah, there's somewhere else. It's somewhere in jail. Yeah, oh yeah, jail, yeah. Some of them are in jail, some of them are in exile. Like, they haven't quite all gotten back together yet. So the power has fallen into these hands of people who... Not that they can't think for themselves, but they've just kind of been raised in this tradition. So they, they reflexively try to give the power over to the liberals, because they think that that's where it's supposed to be. And the workers have handed power to the socialists because the workers haven't had time to learn about socialism in any sort of extreme depth to be able to distinguish like Mensheviks from Bolsheviks from socialist revolutionaries. To them, socialists are socialists. These three parties are just kind of like, you know, whatever. They're, they're the same thing. So those are the leaders that they elected to the Soviet, uh, the executive committee of the Soviet. And then the executive committee of the Soviet is like, desperately trying to pass the power over to the liberals because they, they don't want responsibility for for the revolution that's going on. Uh, there, there's a couple of amusing remarks in here where um, I think Trotsky points out that while the Soviet is trying to give the power over to the, to the Duma, the provisional committee, which becomes the provisional government, they're like, 
look, we're giving you the power, but you better let us keep agitating, you know, don't, don't hamper our, our, like, press, our papers, or anything like that. And it's like, wait, you guys already have the power, what, what do you mean, don't mess with us and our papers, you could just do whatever you want, why are you trying to give the power back? <laughs> But um, it's it's kind of a historically significant example of ideology kind of overriding what's actually happening in front of people. Uh, these these socialist leaders of the executive committee of the Soviet are seeing what they are trained to see rather than what is actually happening in front of them. They've grown up in the school of thought that. Russia has to go through a bourgeois revolution first before it can do a socialist revolution. So they're not seeing a socialist revolution. They're seeing a bourgeois revolution. And when they get the power, they think, this is wrong. This is not how it's supposed to be. But the fact of the matter is the workers did take the power. Uh, that was the only class, the workers and the peasants, who actually held power in the city and, and the country at large once it, once it started spreading. So you, you have to deal with what is actually happening rather than what you think should be happening. And they were committed to what they thought should be happening, so much so that they like wound up crippling the Soviet and putting a lot of power into the hands of the provisional government that would later have to be won back. And it, it kind of was an arduous process after that to, to win the power back, but that winds up basically being what what the rest of uh, 1917 is about, is about the, the slow struggle to claw that power back. And it, it starts with um, winning over the socialists. Uh, Lenin comes back and wins over the Bolsheviks to this idea that our slogan needs to be all power to the Soviets. You know, we've got to give up this idea that it's going to be a democratic revolution. It's it's going to be a workers-led run revolution. It's not going to involve the the bourgeoisie. It's going to be the workers at the at the head of this movement. Yeah, yeah. Uh, no, it, it's really interesting. It's also really interesting how even the liberal the bourgeois as a and all of that, even they didn't really want the power. It's, it's really astounding how, oh, if one single dude, the star floater, had accepted the idea, it technically, it would have happened in Russia. So, from a certain point, I'm sure that at this would have ended in complete disaster, and maybe, you know, of the socialists taking power for real this time would have happened like months earlier or whatever, but it it's also really it like mess us up how the even the liberals didn't really want the power they tried to uh, or get the SR flutter to or actually it take power and all of that it, it's really interesting how ideology can really affect people's of my as to such understand, like, you have socialists that want liberals to take power, and you have liberals that want the more anarchy to take power. Yeah, it's, it, I think it's really in the case of the liberals, though, they, 
maybe are not misled so much by ideology as the socialists were because the liberals knew and and they talked about how they felt like they were constantly on the verge of being put under arrest by the soviet the liberals didn't want to take the power because they i, I mean basically they lacked the ability to and what i mean by that is that any of the orders they would have wanted to give out through the new governmental apparatus would have had to have been carried out at that moment through the Soviet. And they tried to give a couple of orders out through, like, the soldiers and stuff like that, but, like, I think there was an instance of somebody in the provisional government or provisional committee uh, where the soldiers had arrested this guy's, like, I, I don't know, former co-worker or whatever, like, some other liberal guy, and he's trying to order the soldiers, like, no, let this guy go, you know? And the soldiers are like, oh, no, we're taking him. You know, like, they, they just wouldn't have listened to the liberals because at that point they were having to give orders, like, directly to the workers and the soldiers. There, there hadn't been enough time for a bureaucracy to set up to kind of uh, mediate between the liberals and the, the, the mass of the working class that was, like, in a super revolutionary mood at the time. So the liberals needed the, the monarchy to take the power as, as kind of a screen for the liberals because the liberals would have more or less been blamed for all of the decisions they made and the workers then would have turned on the liberals more directly instead of just the monarchy, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it does make sense. Uh, I got to admit that I, I kind of knew that Okay, the Taliban were tough-minded, but ideology, they, they were actually pretty good reason for Taliban to want the monarchy in Iraq. And I, I also know that monarchy and liberalism isn't exactly a contradiction because there were any parliamentary monarchies and all of that. I would still have I want the fucking turf island, but... but it, it's this... You know, kind of funny, when, when you abstract it, and you simply say that the socialists wanted the liberals to take power, and the liberals wanted the monarchy to take power, it, it's just yeah, yeah. Play how, how it's, it's, up everything yeah. was. Like you said, it's, it's just funny, nobody wanted the power. The socialists didn't want it because they didn't think they were supposed to have it, and the liberals and the monarchists didn't want it because the power was dangerous to them, because for them holding the power they would have to act in their class interests, of course, that's what they would do, but to do that would immediately turn the revolutionary soldiers and workers against them, so if they had the power, the only thing they could do is just stall, basically, so what they want, what, what the liberals want, and the monarchists want, really, is for the Soviet to disperse, distract, disorient the workers, and that's what sort of happens at the start before things get put back on track. Yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, no, to, to some extent, I also kind of relate because I don't think Americans and we have many examples of crises that happen in the country and leads to pretty much. No one really wanted to take power, and even if they could, but uh, in many countries, it's here that they will, I don't feel respect that, and in Argentina it happens often. Whenever there's a crisis, there's always the uh, a feeling amongst the political actors that 
whoever takes power during the crisis is kinda fucked. So don't really want to take power, but they also can really is is that because no one can say, hey, no, I don't want to take advantage of this. I don't want to take power because I kind of kiss you politically, politically and whatnot. So to some extent, it kind of maybe a lack of of conflict is not really change. It's all because we stay here on the world or liberal democracy, it is all because of we stay in a capitalist world, and I'm sure that 100 or 200 or however many years from now, we, if it was the world system and has been abolished, it's a, the socialist revolution, or has happened with war or whatever, and people in the future won't understand it. Uh, n- none of this world. It, it's funny to see how, how, how kind of universal at this thing is of, oh yeah, a crisis. A crazy happens, plenty of people can take power, but they cannot want to because they know that and if they look, they, they're likely to, to get a yeah, worse result. The closest result. thing in America probably. would probably be know. the Civil War and Reconstruction period in American history, but that was the 1860s, so it's even like well before 1917, you know? And it wasn't so much that, like, nobody wanted to take the power. It was that, like, Lincoln and people in general were really hesitant to free the slaves. But that was the only way for the North to win the war. So it it's kind of like they were hesitant to take the power in the sense that it required the military power of the freed slaves in order to overthrow the Southern Confederacy. But they did eventually actually... Uh, decide to do that with the Emancipation Proclamation. So they didn't totally refuse to take the power, um, but then during Reconstruction, they they kind of... The, the classic saying about the American Civil War is that the North won the war, but the South won the peace, because Reconstruction was ultimately defeated by the South um, during peacetime through the terrorist tactics of the Ku Klux Klan, and various other local uh, terroristic methods, excluding blacks from pretty much a civil existence, you know? Um, so the, the North was not committed to seeing the final completion of Reconstruction in the South because it would have involved kind of pushing the power of the freed blacks in the South, and they they weren't willing to do that and so the north kind of lost out on political power to the south as a result so it, it's kind of similar in that vein but not not really quite that's the closest thing we got in america <laughs> yeah i'll say i do like trotsky's talking about Milyakov, I, I think all of that is super interesting. Milyakov is kind of the liberal who is maybe the most class-conscious member of the bourgeoisie in Russia during this period. And he has that phrase, Trotsky likes to quote, uh, the everyday man is a fool. And he usually says that to people, and the people he is saying it to think that they are think that he is talking about other people, but really he's talking about the person he is talking to. Um, he, he usually is snidely like, "Oh, you're so naive." Uh, it's it's just very 
interesting to to read about somebody who is that class conscious and knows exactly what is going on um even if he is somebody on the other side of the barricades it's it's just kind of interesting to get that very clear and honest perspective that he knows how dire things are and i, I think it's informative too you know yeah i i, I do agree it's pretty informative. It's pretty informative. Uh, look, because I was curious, and I thought that about the music of, or has, has his own book about the, the history of the Russian Revolution from the liberal perspective. If I went out, I, I tried to spend some hours of trying to find it. And especially, you know, not. It, I don't it think that, wasn't that I would exist book, anymore. It's it's hard to write about those things after you've like totally lost, you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, I know, but but I just try to find. I do think I do think that it might actually. To, to be fair, to be fair, I, I I was trying to see if I could find you know a uh, totally legit it. A PDF sure. that I totally it won't be downloaded from you know leaves and whatnot, but I I do see that at the books from him you know available online, and it does seem like his Russian Revolution book. There there is a version in the Internet Archive that's like ten pages as of the book, but obviously it's it's only Russian so. Uh, uh, I can read it and, and I don't know or if anyone did our group knows Russian or whatever but it, it would be interesting it would be interesting to, to see if there's any uh, English version of it, it on, online available just to see just to see it could a liberal right after it, it happened right after you know how he, yeah I know that what the perspective comes to justify that one no? perspective, but I think if you want to find one that might actually exist, because Milyakov, yeah, Kerensky, he he lived a lot longer than Milyakov did. I think he lived Kerensky. like I don't think he died until the seventies, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I actually checked his Wikipedia article earlier today. To confirm if something yeah, did occur about him, was too, uh, and yeah, he server, died in, we, we really I think, 1970. Um, I don't know if you've seen us talk about Artie before, but um, he, he's an older guy, he's in his 70s now, and he was he's met all kind of people. He met uh, Fidel Castro in Cuba, he met um, oh, shoot, uh, Eldridge Cleaver, uh, a couple other people I can't remember right now. But we were like, oh my god, did you ever run into Kerensky? Because he was, they were alive at the same time. And, you know, around, you know, I think Artie would have been in his early 20s or something. But he had never run into Kerensky. And I was like, oh man, how crazy would that be to go run into Kerensky and just be like, you lost, fool. <laughs> you know, or whatever. But uh, I think that's um, interesting, too, because Kerensky, like, lived out his life afterwards in America. Well, I don't know if he, how long he did it, but I know America, he had some kind of, like, cushy university job after the fact. Uh, basically, the, the bourgeoisie kind of taking care of their own. 
sort of thing. Like they, they recognized the service Kerensky tried to perform for them, so they, they gave him a job and kept him well privileged and so on and so forth. I think that's kind of interesting. Yeah, yeah. No, it's it, it kind of crazy. The, the, the most, the funniest thing about the Kayaki is the fact that he's not as was the world would translate it. Like, like, I know that Kerensky is like 10 years younger than Lenin, so, so he probably he didn't mean like they had any connection or whatever for all of this, but what are the fucking odds? What are the odds that the, the guy would, would what the uh, president of the provincial government or whatever his official post was? What 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 are the fucking us that he replaced by someone that I was the prince? Leof, as you know, that how are you I his dad. What are the fucking us of that? Uh, I don't know. Uh, oh, it's just saying. I I should remember that one time I hear that. At le- any whoever his tutor was, as uh, sorry, I, I said that. Not. Oh. I remember reading that. What that that le- any tutor who who was the guy to who take him privately or whatever, and he was Kevinsky that. I, I may be saying it wrong, but I think it's like Plekhanov. That was that was I, Lenin's I, kind I think of like that's his name. Let, let me check, bro. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, like, what are the errors of that, as you know? It, I know it's just a meaningless coincidence it's at the end of the day, but no, or it, it isn't black enough. Or, I, I know it's Wikipedia, but reading straight from Wikipedia, yeah, in the article for Okereski, his father, Fidior Mikhailovich Kerensky was a teacher at the a director of the local gymnasium and was later promoted to be the, an inspector of public schools. He found, uh, members of the Kerensky and the Ulyanov family were friends. Kerensky's father was the, a teacher of Vladimir Ulyanov Lenin. I had even oh, okay, just like a teacher at university. Okay, university of like, Kazan. Like, like Plekhanov. Okay, I got you. Yeah, no, that is pretty small world. That's pretty funny. I didn't know that either. Uh, to, to be precise, it seems like he was his, his teacher for the uh, team before university. I don't know if he was high schools or secondary schools or how do they do that, but it seems like he was a secondary oh, eleven well teacher, not a university that, um, teacher. When we read 10 Days That Shook the World, there's, I think, a scene where... There's two different socialists from different from different camps. I forget how hostile the parties are officially with each other, but two individuals from two different hostile socialist groups, they cross each other in the street, and they're like old friends, you know, because 
before 1917 and 1905, all of these people have been working together more or less. And like, you know, they're all kind of against the czar and they're all trying to hide out and live clandestinely and not get arrested and things like that. So they're all like friends, basically, even though they're super politically hostile with each other. But they cross each other's paths and they're like, oh, where are you going? And they're like, oh, I'm going to help set up the whatever. And this guy's like, oh, that's crazy. I'm going over here to help discuss how to take these guys down or whatever. And they're like, oh, that's crazy. I'll see you later, you know? And I'm like, oh, that's funny. But, uh, uh, yeah, so, I mean, other than just, like, the, the shock of these two chapters being the, the Soviets trying to give the power away, which I think we've kind of answered why, why they were doing that a little bit, um, just the fact that they were kind of second- and third-rate leaders that couldn't adapt to the situation, and the liberals didn't want the power because they'd get crucified if they took it, and the monarchy was pretty much already dead, so it couldn't take the power. Uh, I think... Yeah, like, uh, it, it, it's not surprising this takes from uh, Mikhail, I, I think his name was Mikhail, whatever self-reported was, after, he did one of those to see that, uh, that if he took the uh, power, uh, he was going to get the one case, so, uh, 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 I, I'm surprised that there was anyone in the uh, monarchy with the no threat to see, yeah, oh, that's yeah. pretty funny too, uh, isn't if it? I do this, I'm describes so. him as like this guy who just races I'm horses, and that's all he likes to this. do, is he just spends all his time with the horses. But even he's smart enough. Oh, not that guy? No, 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 no. My correction. Brother, brother. My correction. He's not oh. a guy who races. That's right, he doesn't even race the things, he, he just bets he's a on, on horse races. But like, even Big he's difference. smart enough to be he's like, oh no, I'm not getting involved in this shit, they're gonna kill me. <laughs> you know, I guess that's true as a gambler, Imagine I guess might be, you know, if it's tough, like, I'm not the best on No, okay, I don't okay. like those thoughts. Alright, well, um, I think we could do two more chapters next week. I think it'll actually be lighter than this week was, because the next chapter is pretty short, and, uh, yeah. Alright, cool, well, uh, do you have any other final ending thoughts, comments, questions, concerns? Uh, to me. No, uh, not really, not really. I, I have to admit, Trotsky kind of growing on me as an author. I don't think he's po correct politically, but I don't know. The, the guy knows how to yeah, write. Yeah, I, I think he's got I the like writing down. I want a message situation. Like I, said, you don't have to agree I cannot think him as a writer. You, know? like, you know, I think Milyakov is really interesting as a character. Certainly disagree with him e extensively, of course, but like the fact that he's so class conscious and can express exactly the class interests of the moment, make him a compelling figure, you know? Yeah, there's something, there's something charismatic about someone who actually eh, doesn't pretend. And he's a piece of shit, but the fact that he's kind of honest about it kind of makes him living to some extent. Of course, if you actually have to interact with him, you want to 
about his license or whatever. But I simply read it. Yeah, it's about that, um, like so good. I already know that I was not. Think about this kind of bit, TV but that I'm way. gonna say off the cuff without thinking too hard about it. I I do think this book, these three volumes, is Trotsky at his best. He, as far as writing is concerned, he is at his best when he is writing histories of things that have already happened. He knows very well how to tell a story and how to make it interesting and how to make it make sense. It's not just that like, oh, A, B, C, D happened. It's like A happened because this is the character of A and this is the logic of A and that's why it leads into B, you know? Yeah, 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 I, I get it, I get it. You know, it, it's a very easy comment I'm about to make, but it's it kind of a sad that just kind ever, you know, about the 50 books, okay, we all kind of wrote a novel or whatever. But yeah, just, it, just saying that to be like, you know, this is, this is like peak right here, so if you ever go digging and decide to read any more of his stuff, it may be... Slightly more disappointing than this, but not not superbly so, you know, just to kind of temper the expectations. This is, in my opinion, like peak Trotsky right here, as far as writing goes. Alright, well. Yeah, yeah. Yep, yep, take care. I got it, I got it. I understand. What? See you next week. Take care.